Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. We've been on hiatus for a month or so, trying to get out of town and or broiling in the heat here in Texas. But I'm happy to be back today with Lauren Magai and to have Lauren join us again. I was trying to remember the last time you were here, but it's it was probably it was probably 2019, yeah, I think. Yeah. Lauren is an investigative reporter for the Dallas Morning News where she focuses on state politics and policy. And that really doesn't do justice to the enormous amount of ground that she has covered since coming to Texas in 2014. Most recently, she has returned again there's a Godfather 3 joke here that we'll, we, I've already made off, off mic, so we won't do it again. But most recently, she's returned again to covering a story that she has a lot of background and a lot of history with. That is a story of the now suspended Attorney General Ken Paxton and his legal, ethical, political travails. Yeah, and it's a beat that you spent, you have spent a lot of time on. So thanks for coming back, Lauren. It's sure, really good to have um, you back here. I, I don't know if I'm happy to be here. I, <laughs> I'm happy to see you. <laughs> well, that's, that's awful nice. You have covered Paxton a lot and broken a lot of big news on this story over the years. Um, we can backfill on some of that as we go. I think let's start with kind of the news of the moment this week. Um, and that is the latest filings in the case, most of which came from the defense, from the Paxton side. But there was an interesting filing by the the, the prosecution, by the House managers that we'll, we'll talk about. So this past Saturday, August 5th, and we're recording uh, on schedule on Tuesday morning, uh, was the deadline set by the Senate rules um, for motions to be considered by the quote-unquote court. And I think it's worth even noting at the outset that the even the process of that is interesting. So there's a series of deadlines we'll talk about, but the filings will be considered first by the Senate Special Committee on Rules and Procedures uh, for the Court of Impeachment, to use its formal title, um, and they will report back to the court on on what they think. Now, the status of that report strikes me as a little vague. We'll get to that, too. <laughs> So why don't you tell us a little bit, you know, to start with, you you and your colleague, uh, Phil Jankowski, wrote a good piece in the Dallas Morning News this week covering those uh, uh, those filings and giving us some subtle interpretation of this, I thought, which we can tease out. So tell us, hmm. <laughs> so, so tell us a bit about what we learned about where the case is, the attorney general's tactics from those filings. Sure. Yeah. I think at this point... Uh, we know a good bit about what Paxton's defense is shaping up to be, what it's shaping up to look like. And you're right, uh, his lawyers have filed a couple dozen, a few dozen different motions. Some of them kind of seem like they overlap, like they've filed multiple motions on why 
the articles of impeachment impeachment should be thrown out for each motion. Different yeah, different there was arguments. Some cut and paste in those. Yeah. Like, oh, in for the, sure, for sure. Part, Lots yeah. of overlap. Um, and we haven't seen as much from the House managers who are going to be tasked with presenting the case for removing Paxton from office. But what we we can see pretty clearly in Paxton's motions to dismiss, of which there are many, is that in many cases he's not actually arguing that what that the actions he's accused of didn't happen. Uh, he's arguing that if they did happen, they were either not illegal, not uh, there was nothing wrong with them, and they are definitely not impeachable offenses. So very, he's not necessarily saying I did do them, but he's saying, hey, look. These things aren't that serious. Uh, they're just some of this is in the course of business, being an elected official, running a huge state agency. And I think one of the most interesting arguments we saw in these filings from over the weekend was about the bribery allegation against him. So, taking a step back, twenty articles of impeachment. They cover a whole slew of things, not just this particular relationship he had with Nate Paul, this Austin uh, businessman who's accused of bribing him, but also his eight-year-old securities fraud cases, and then a handful of kind of, quote-unquote, you're a bad guy allegations stuffed in at the end, like, you know, dereliction of duty and that kind of thing. But the bribery motion to dismiss that particular article, uh, Phil and I found really interesting because... He talks about how, you know, elected officials do a lot of things in the course of a typical day, and that might help some people. It might help a constituent. Constituents help elected officials, maybe not intentionally, maybe intentionally. And there was a great line in there that was like, all of these things I'm accused of, there may be a quid there, there may be a quo there, but there's no quid pro quo, right? right? There's no, nothing to tie everything together to show that I intentionally asked for something from Nate Paul, and he intentionally gave it to me with the understanding that we were swapping favors. Right. And so Somewhere that was between, super like, interesting. constituent service and palness. Exactly. Yeah. He even says, like, you're basically trying to turn a friendship into something dirty. Um, and I think the a really strong argument his lawyers made in that filing is they had they had a line that said something like, if this is bribery, then anything that an elected official does in the course of their day could also be considered bribery. And I think that personally, I feel like that argument was is directed at the senators themselves. I mean, the jurors that are going to determine whether he's removed for office are also elected officials who also have constituents asking them for favors. And and their job as an elected official yeah. is to serve their constituency, right? So I think they're going to make that argument directly to these guys that like, hey, look, we all do this kind of stuff. It's not dirty it's not bad it's just what happens it's like really good constituent service exactly and, exactly. and I, you know i mean if it happened at all if it it's a little it's a little jokey but but it is also i mean i think you raise a really interesting point that was one of the you know one of the the themes of the article and one of the things i really liked about the article you had a a quote from i think a law professor at unc maybe Mm, but anyway, okay. you know, there was yes. a line in there that was that really perfectly captured, I think, what is important, challenging, difficult to understand about that pro this process and what also makes it difficult to predict. And that's that line that, you know, this is neither a legal process nor a political process. It's a hybrid of the two. Right. 
And, yeah. you know, I, I think one of the things that the point you're making, which I think is an excellent one, that that argument about the nature of the relationship with Paul and, you know, the accusation that you're just reading the worst possible, making the worst possible interpretation appeals to the jury really underlines the degree to which, you know, the jury is a bunch of elected officials in what is in its ultimate intention, not a criminal trial, but a political. Exactly. And we say political trial and it sounds like you're talking about the Soviet Union or something. (laughs) But But that ultimately is what's going on. It's true, yeah. We were just talking off. Not that it's like the Soviet Union, but that it's a a political process. Uh, We were just talking off off mic about the Ferguson v. Maddox case, which is kind of the only legal precedent strong legal precedent we have for impeachment and you know this is back like somebody in, from the executive branch exactly right, back yeah. in you know 1917 when pa ferguson was impeached and that went all the way to the state supreme court these questions of whether he could be impeached and when and how and on what charges and in that um you know they they make it very clear that like they say something but the, the court said something in there about uh you know this the crime the allegation doesn't have to be in the penal code to be impeachable right you know this these are two separate and apart things but that said the senate ultimately has the power to determine what is impeachable and what isn't right. and so they could make it much more of a criminal like trial if they wanted to it's totally up to their discretion and that's that's kind of where we get to the gray area here is paxson's arguing that all of these things should be dismissed, that this is a criminal trial, that he hasn't been given his due process, that none of these allegations are real crimes, if they even happened, if he even did them. And we're going to have to see how the senators feel about that. And he, he is playing directly to them in their understanding of where the line is between, you know, big, great constituent services and something else. Right. right. <laughs> so, and, and so, yeah, something a little more nefarious. Right. You know, I want to I want to come back to that to some elements of that point, but you know, another thing I wanted to ask you what you thought about that, you know, I kind of picked up in reading those the the, the latest big batch of filings, and there was a little bit of this in some of the earlier filings, but it really came up in a couple of the the more recent batch, and that is, you know, as you say, there's there's not much of contesting of the facts right. of Paxton's actions per se. A couple of spots for me, a little bit. They edge into that, but the other thing I thought was very interesting, and that I frankly had not thought about much. We were talking, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Sometimes, you know, these things get pointed out to you by lawyers. You go, oh, okay. But you know, a couple of the in a couple of those pleadings, or three or four of them, really, that I can remember offhand. You know, there's this kind of thing that the (laughs) that the defense attorneys do in the pleadings that say, you know, these guys are really used the wrong language and were sloppy in the way that they put some of these charges together. And, you know, I mean, in the same way that I guess, you know, Paxton is innocent till proven guilty, you know, I want to wait and see what the response of the house managers and their lawyers are. But I'm wondering what you made of that. Uh, That was a really interesting argument for sure. Uh, An example of that is they said, okay, there's this article of impeachment about these whistleblowers and these whistleblowers went to the FBI and then they got fired and, you know, said they were retaliated against. And and they wrote, they didn't name these whistleblowers. Yeah. So 
you know, who are they? We know who they are. We think we know who, we, come on, we all know who they right. are. But they didn't explicitly name them. Therefore, the article of impeachment is unconstitutionally vague. And they make that argument for several of them. And I thought that was definitely super interesting. Um, and something in that uh, Ferguson v. Maddox ruling was a little bit, I, I couldn't really tell whether they were weighing in on how specific an actual article of impeachment needed to be or just how specific impeachment allegations need to be. But uh, there was a line in there about the nature of impeachment is that it's kind of general. Yeah. You know, you're making a general statement about this guy is a baddie or whatever and he deserves to be out. Right. And uh, I wonder if that w in that instance they were referring to the specific words on the page or just kind of you can be impeached for anything right. under the sun if this if the senate thinks that you know it's fine so uh, that that argument about things not being specific enough or them making mistakes um you know little turns of phrase that maybe aren't quite accurate uh they also Paxson's lawyers also argue that they've misinterpreted state law a few times that they don't understand, the House managers don't understand what the attorney general does, what the attorney general is tasked with requiring requiring to do under state law. That was specific to the um, MIDI Foundation, arguments of the AG's office, whether it needs to be defending charitable organizations from being taken advantage of, or if they just need to be kind of overseeing right. them to make sure that the the public trust is you know strong in those institutions and um you know i'm not a lawyer but reading the law uh it doesn't seem to say that the ag's office has to be on the side of the charitable organization right. so that was very interesting but again it's up to the senate whether they think well it doesn't really matter whether they misinterpreted law or they left out a name we still think the allegation itself the underlying allegation is concerning enough right. to, now, to take up another one i thought was interesting i would add to that list that that you know and again i haven't i haven't gone i need to go back and kind of relook at all the various reference points here was their characterization of the attorney general op opinion versus the informal opinion that right. they say he issued. Right, right, right. Which yeah. I thought was another interesting piece of that. And interesting in a way because it it also intersects this issue of, you know, another, you know, a particular aspect of the jury pool, which is, you know, uh, uh, the position of Senator Hughes and all of this. For sure. Well, now we have Senator Campbell thrown in a bit. Right. Um, you know, if people want to read our Dallas Morning News exclusive right. on that. But we'll I, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you you yeah. guys really kind of elevated that or, you know, shed some more light on the position of Senator Campbell and all this. So tell us a little about that. That was. I mean, just in general. People have to remember that these every single one of these senators has some kind of a relationship with Paxton, good or bad, right? They've they've campaigned for him, they've campaigned against him, they're friends of his, you know, they whatever, right? They've, they've served with him. They've served with him. They've given his campaign money. They're whatever. Um, they have been in each other's weddings, all of that kind of thing. Um, but there's all there's been a few concerns raised by, you know, whether it's Democrats or outside groups or whatever, about a handful of them. And um, Senator Hughes is, is 
referenced in one of the articles of impeachment. And then uh, we reported, geez, was it only last week, um, <laughs> uh, that uh, the this alleged affair that Paxson had with a, a woman who worked for Nate Paul, that she previously worked for Senator Campbell by by all by all measures she is there's just someone by the same name that worked for Senator Campbell um there's been some reporting from the New York Post uh about that relationship and so you know this this employment apparently happened with with Senator Campbell happened before she worked for Nate Paul and there's no indication at this point that Paxson was involved in any way but you know I'm sure people are asking well if she worked for Nate Paul immediately afterwards, why did she leave Senator Campbell's office if this alleged affair did happen? Did that play into it? And should Campbell be a juror in this process if she's has a direct link to someone mentioned in an article of impeachment? But we haven't seen Patrick express any concern with any individual senator's ability to 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 be a juror, even before Angela Paxson was forced to recuse herself he didn't sort of express partially a cons- recuse herself partially recuse herself right. yeah, yeah. He, he didn't express concern even with her and so um i don't know the experts we talked to said they don't they don't see any other juror any other senator being asked to not vote right. on his removal but again anything's possible it's been one of the really f- fascinating aspects of this to me the way that you know, look, one of the things that's come up in this conversation already, and just to kind of bring it out maybe, is that, you know, one element of that hybrid of the political and the legal in this whole thing is that, you know, there's been no jury constituted relative to the defendant like this in the history of, you know, regular judicial proceedings. Right. 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 I mean, the entire Senate, for the, a lot of the reasons, or most of them, for a lot of the reasons that you just talked about would be disqualified from any strictly legal judicial proceeding as a juror. One of the experts said that expressly to us. They said in any other situation, if this was a a criminal trial in a court in Texas, uh, none of these people would be sitting on the (laughs) jury. Um, But this isn't that. Well, and and that's the thing you have, you know, and I think is, you know, whether you're sympathetic to Paxton or hostile to Paxton, it's a kind of thing that you really just have to keep in the back of your mind at all times. And I think, you know, for people that, you know, like you, you've spent a lot of time as a legislative reporter in that chamber. And it's kind of hard to imagine what the feel in the room is going to be like. For example, should they be discussing, you know, the the role of Paxton's alleged affair and the role of Nate Paul in hiring, you know, the, the, the person of interest there as, you know, all of these sinners sitting with a colleague who is married and who was, you know, the person that was, you know, that was the wife in all of this. Right. I mean, it's just. It's, and would they call Campbell as a witness? Would they say, did you know? Would they, you know, I mean. Right. Who knows? Uh, they, I, I'm for, for, People that don't haven't spent so much time in that building, the Senate is known as being sometimes frustratingly locked down in terms of oratory, and um, you know, th- there's this very strict veneer of 
collegiality between members, even if they're having a, a pretty rough debate on the floor. Dan Patrick has has tried to maintain a very tight grip on what should and can be said, um, raised voices, that kind of thing. And so um, I, I definitely think that's going to be true for the trial, too. He's 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 not going to want things to get out of hand, but but he's also faced with these impeachment allegations touching on some very sensitive topics. You know, it's not just business and money and alleged bribes. It, like you right. said, it's personal relationships and marriages. And it's it seemed to me, you know, and then you know, and then in another, you know, you know, pivoting from that part, which I think is been the almost irresistible part, particularly. You mentioned the Post article, particularly for people reporting from out of state. It's like, what, his wife's a senator? You know, it's, you know, it's understandably irresistible as a story. I mean, you know, to me, the Hughes situation is in some ways more awkward, you know, not for the attorney general, but maybe a little, but certainly for the lieutenant governor. For sure. Um, One of the experts we talked to said that the fact that a senator who's going to be a juror in the case is referenced in an article of impeachment, not as a, a third party, but as someone who's alleged to have directly helped Paxton do the alleged wrongdoing he's accused of doing. I mean, as as a fixer of sorts, um, the expert couldn't believe that that person would still yeah. be able to vote. Um, and again, any of this can change at any point. I mean, the Senate has the Senate set the rules that said Angela Paxton can't vote on removal. So I would think that they they would have to agree again if they're going gonna take someone else out of the mix. But um, yeah, that was something that that was very difficult to swallow for these impeachment experts we talked to that sure, they all know him. They are, they're all going to have some relationship with a statewide elected official, but some of this stuff is more concerning. Right. Well, and the underlying, you know, look, the institutional politics of this are such that, you know, in recent sessions, you know, Senator Hughes has been one of the lieutenant governor's most frequent and reliable exponents in pursuing his agenda. For sure. And, and you know, uh, the real... The real thing to watch in this whole trial is Dan Patrick. Dan Patrick is, by all accounts, the most or one of the most astute political minds in this state. He is incredibly intelligent. He is incredibly good at uh, playing the game in front of the camera, behind the camera. He, he. I mean, I think political observers now and and tell me if I'm wrong are, are saying he's he is the most powerful lieutenant governor we've had since you know the ones that whose names adorn buildings here right. in Austin and he really does loom large over this trial over that chamber over the Republican majority in that chamber and over people specifically like Senator Hughes and others who he's deputized to be kind of his stars in the Senate and how much will how he feels about the allegations against Paxton bleed into their decision making process. I mean it's it's what everyone's asking. What what does Dan Patrick wants, right? He's right. not a juror. He's supposed to be the judge, but he is so incredibly powerful um and so astute that we're all asking ourselves that. Yeah, I mean I think that's been one of the key questions all along is, you know, I mean the operational question is, you know, how does he behave as a, you know, presiding officer, 
slash judge, given all of these cross currents we've talked about, you just raised his position, the views of the senators of him and the, their history with him. You know, and, and and I read the rules to give him quite a lot of latitude. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They yes. <laughs> yes. Dan Patrick is is, you know, and he's not a lawyer. As far as we know right now, he neither he nor the Senate have retained outside legal counsel. He has lawyers in his office, obviously, yeah. but we we've asked them repeatedly, you know, have you brought any impeachment experts on? You know, and they haven't at this point, to this point at least. And so uh Pat, Patrick and the senators have placed a lot of control over these proceedings in Patrick's lap. And so we're going to have to see how he uses it. Uh, and, and by all accounts, publicly, he's been he's he's played this very, uh, I mean, very um, kind of being the parent in the room, you know, being I'm not going to comment on this process. It's very serious. It's going to be fair to everyone involved. And I believe in this institution. And he's just been very um, straight backed and and kind of playing this elder statesman like role. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think that 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 follows from what you were saying a few minutes ago about the role he often plays when the Senate is convened is is convened and operating in public, of being the stern parent and not you know you you know you're raising your voice exactly yeah and we <laughs> right. saw that happen this past session yeah. with Roland Gutierrez you know and his upset over gun laws right. gun restrictions not passing in Texas and Patrick really came down on him pretty hard for raising his voice on the floor and and I. I'm sure that if that happens in these proceedings, he might even be even more stern because this hasn't happened in a, in a million, I said, in a hundred years, a hundred plus years, and and he doesn't want he doesn't want it to reflect poorly on him. You know, he's getting older. He's already thinking about legacy, uh, his legacy. You can see it in in everything that he does, and I'm sure that he he wants to make sure that this is um, is something that that reflects well on him when historians look back on it. And th- and that's, you know, a piece of something we were talking about before we, we started, and that is the the cost-benefit analysis in stark terms that everybody is doing as they consider, quote-unquote, the facts of the case, mm-hmm. you know, particularly in the Senate, but, in, you know, in the House too. I mean, everybody involved is trying to figure out you know, how they're going to balance what is clearly a degree of mobilization on Paxton's behalf in certain quarters of the Republican Party and particularly the activist part of the party. Right. You know, and, you know, our polling has not been helpful on that because, you know, what we found for anybody, I don't think, I mean, we found that Democrats' views of the justification of the impeachment were pretty predictable. Right. But Republicans were split evenly, right? I mean, we basically, as people that listen to the podcast, we've talked about it a few times. But, you know, essentially when we said, do you think the House of Representatives was justified or not justified? 31% of Republicans said justified. 30% said unjustified. 39% said they didn't know Mm -hmm. kind of juries out. So the kind of public opinion support you might look to among Republicans, it's often reassert that can be reassuring on some issues, say border security, is just not present or hasn't been thus far. Well, and you know, most of the Republicans in the House voted for impeachment. And we've even seen I mean this week or last week, Jared Patterson, who is by 
by many accounts, one of the most conservative, uh, you know, right wing members of the House, quote, tweeted me and, you know, was like, oh, so first he said he didn't do it. And now he said maybe he did it, but it's it's nothing's wrong with it. Like, what's up with this guy? I, that was really surprising to me. You know, this yeah. this isn't a black and white thing for Republicans. Um, and, you know, we see that in the fact that Abbott, uh, you know, statewide elected officials have not been coming vocal publicly to his aid. You know, he has he has Donald Trump, which is big for him, and he has Senator Cruz, which is big for him. But um, people are not willing at this point to expend political capital defending Ken Paxton, and um, that's really telling. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of people that have you know there are the handful of people that seem to be most active in. Defending them are people that are have never been or are no longer in office, and the math for them, I think, is different. It is, yeah. You know, um, yeah. You know before we go on, you mentioned the house, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like uh, sell the house the house short here. Um, did you find anything interesting in the house motions? In response, I mean, I thought the cell phone thing I hadn't really noticed was kind of interesting. I, I hadn't noticed that either. Yeah, the the House managers are arguing that uh, apparently Paxton's team is going to, under the current rules, would be allowed to use their cell phones during the trial, but the House managers and their their side wouldn't be able to use it. So if they caught that dichotomy there, that that's good on them. We'll have to see. I, I it'd be hard. I'd be hard pressed to see why there should be different rules for different side yeah, yeah but be. other than that um we we haven't seen much more from kind of the quote-unquote prosecutorial side on how they plan to to present this uh later in the month uh the sides are going to have to present witness lists and i think that might be the clearest window into right. how deeply the prosecutors decide to get, you know, is is the alleged mistress going to be on that list? Right. Uh, is Nate Paul going to be on that list? Um, or is this really going to be narrowly focused on these whistleblowers? Um, if they if they keep it narrowly focused, I, I, I would be surprised. I mean, this, this is, yeah. Doesn't seem to be what the tactic was. It it does it doesn't, and I think people would be asking, why didn't you call this right. person if they don't include them on the list? But I think there's a lot going on behind the scenes, probably too, that we're not seeing. Sure. Um, so, yeah, that's what. I'm Well, that brings for. me to a question. I want to, you know, we're winding down, but I want to ask you a couple, you know, sort of, you know, reportery questions. Okay. So, you know. <laughs> How much harder has the gag order made it to report this story? And, you know, I'm curious. I'm curious, like, how – because, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me, again, on the political side of the defense filings, that huge body of filings, was that and, – and there was a story, I think, in the Texas Tribune today to this effect that, you know, the language in the filings that are part of the legal process – sort of allows the defense to, in a way, sidestep the gag order by, you know, for lack of, you know, this is a gross generalization by kind of calling bullshit on the House in the filings, but then saying, hey, no, these are just a legal document. We're not, we're not opining per se. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, you're totally right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we saw Tony Busby, one of uh, Paxson's lawyers, 
go on Mark Davis's radio show and just read from the filings, which, like you said, it can be pretty uh, bombastically written. Yeah. Um, and it's just assaulti- say, hey, it's assaultive on the, and insulting to the House. Y- you know, spots. I'm not violating the gag order because I'm reading from the legal right. filings. Um, but, you know, legal filings are are filed with those that kind of language sure. all the time. Um, in fact, the prosecutors in Ken Paxton's securities fraud case often use very colorful language over the years in those filings. So I think that's been a really interesting tactic. We haven't seen the House managers. Uh, we've kind of seen them shut down their public communications. You know, we were seeing Andrew Murr, you know, writing op-eds, and we were getting quotes pretty frequently from from their lawyers, and now they're well, I can't talk because of the gag order. Um, so, yeah, we've seen the two sides interact with that order very, very differently. And I kind of understand why both of them are doing what they're doing. Paxton Paxton needs to play this out in the court of public opinion as much as humanly possible before he gets to the trial date. Because if if behind the scenes he is not pressuring the jurors, um, this is the only way they're going to feel pressure to vote a certain way is if their constituents continue to hear about this, are upset about it, and write to them, call them, you know, threaten not to give them money, um, and they hear that through the grapevine. So I understand why Paxson's guys are still out there right. <laughs> reading pro forma uh, and why the lawyers want to kind of be very careful uh, the lawyers on the other side want to be very careful and make sure they're not sticking in Patrick, Dan Patrick's craw because they want to start out with a good relationship with him Yeah, uh, from the outset. I'm trying to ask this in a way that you can actually answer. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it, I mean, what I, what I want to say is, you know, has it also meant, you know, when I asked about whether it was harder to report does it also mean that people are like not talking to you off the record as much and things like that? Oh, come on. You know, okay. I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> well, I'm not asking like who's. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I mean, because I, you know, look, I mean, I've run and I've been out of town a lot, but, you know, even people that I know that are not elected officials or whatever are pretty reticent to talk. Yeah. Even, yeah. even if it's confidential, even if you swear it's off the record. I mean, it does feel to me like, you know, and I'm, and not everybody, but that, People are paying attention to the gag order. I, I think, and it's got to make it a little bit harder. More so, there's been a chilling effect. Let's just say, yeah. uh, and in some way, it's been a, a a little easier to report certain aspects of it because there's not a press conference every day in which Tony Busby and Dan Cogdell are not only reiterating what they just wrote, but then making all these other statements that we have to report on. So there's in some ways less public information out there that we have to deal with. So we have to figure out how to work with that. Right. Um, but yeah, there there has, people are being careful. I will say people are being careful. Yeah. Um, but the gag order is on public statements yeah. so <laughs> of a certain nature, right? And I actually think some of them are over-interpreting it. You know, pa- Patrick was very clear that he's not saying you can't talk about- Utter a word about utter it. Utter a word about it. Yeah, you just, you can't say anything disparaging. You can't share information about, you know, uh, discovery that the other side might not have or who you're going to call as witnesses. You know, he just doesn't want, he doesn't want this thing to be tried before it's tried. Um Right. So um, <laughs> yeah. it's already, yeah, it's, it's happening right. anyway, yeah. but uh, so. 
Yeah. Um, so, so we'll end and, and, um, you know, I want to end by just saying, look, you've been living with this story for a long time. Almost 10 years now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, you took a little bit of a break in terms of being on other beats and, but, you know, you've been close to this for a long time across a couple of different jobs. Does it feel like you're going to reach a denouement on this or are you still in the sense of like, this is just never going to end? <laughs> I'm just wondering, like your sense I mean, of it as you're back, as you're back, as you're kind of back, kind of full time on this, right? I, I this is all I do. Right. Um, it's historic, so you know I would expect no less. And he Paxton's also our local guy. You know, he's he lives in in North Texas, but uh, I think so much of it depends on what the the trial outcome is. You know, if if he's removed. No matter what happens, there's going to be fallout stories. You know, if he's removed, how does that affect the elections? You know, uh, are people going to be running on that? Is he going to run for something else? Are they going to bar him from ever holding public office? Is he going to challenge that in court? Um, is if he does or doesn't get it removed, what's that mean for his wife's career? Is she, by all accounts, is the more outgoing, personable of the pair. Um, and she's already been tied up in some of his troubles um, because of the alleged affair and this mm -hmm. process server. So it's just things over the Driving years. The truck, right? the day of the serving. Yeah. The and, serving, yeah. Um, but, you know, say if he gets removed, does she, does she, or do they ma and pa Ferguson this thing or does she move on and, and kind of go her own way and say, this is my time to kind of be more independent politically um, because she is seen as, as, a, a rising star having that potential having that potential yeah so i think for me um <laughs> so, i try not to think of it as like where am i in the in the reporting process of this story because they're going to be around like whether he's removed from office whether he wins um he's going to be a force i think uh in the election, at least the near-term elections, whatever happens to him, it's going to be very impactful for what happens in the elections. If he wins, how do the other statewide elected officials deal with the fact that they did not come out swinging for him? Right. How does and how does he deal and with how that? does he deal with that? <laughs> yeah, and he's going to be seen as vindicated, and is he going to be critical of them for not sticking up for him more strongly? I mean, it, I think it's going to it's it's a story that has legs, and it could. Um, if he remains in politics, this could be a huge boost for him. Uh, and so I, mental health-wise, <laughs> don't try to anticipate anything because... Um, yeah, all the signs are, it's... All the, who, the, all the signs are, who knows? I mean, I really, people are asking me, how do you think, what, what are the, what are the tea leaves saying? And, and I truly do have no earthly idea how this could go, which makes it pretty interesting um, uh, and makes me feel like I need to stay pretty nimble mentally so, so as not to burn out on it before the sure. news even happens, you know? Yeah, I mean, and it's a, you know, it's it's a lot. It, it is a lot. There's it a lot going a lot. on with yeah. this. And as we, you know, he's, as we've he's even also under securities it. fraud indictment. He's also being sued by a state bar disciplinary committee for his role in the 2020 election. The whistleblower lawsuit that created these articles of impeachment is pending still uh, against his agency. And so, you know, there's four or five things happening in the background, too, in addition to the imp impeachment that we didn't even talk about. So, so <laughs> a lot know, happening. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. You're in it for a while. <laughs> sure. We're all in it. We're all in We're it for a while. It, yeah. But, you know. 
Well, uh, with that, thanks again for coming back, Lauren. Sure. And I I know you're busy because there's a lot of stuff to read and a lot of people to talk to. Really appreciate you coming back. Um, As always, thanks to our excellent production team in the Dev Studio in the College of Liberal Arts here at UT Austin. If you found us on one of the podcasting platforms, you'll find some of the data that I mentioned today and any all kinds of other stuff at our website, texaspolitics.utexas.edu. You will, of course, find Lauren McGuire in the Dallas Morning News very frequently of late for reasons we've talked about. Uh, Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project, at the University of Texas at Austin.